This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Father Vincent Toomey, who's a professor emeritus of theology at St. Patrick's Pontifical University, Manuth, Ireland. A former doctoral student of Joseph Ratzinger, Father Toomey is the author of several books and articles, including Pope Benedict XVI, The Conscience of Our Age. With Father Vincent Toomey, we go inside the pages of The Dynamics of the Liturgy, Joseph Ratzinger's Theology of Liturgy, published by Ignatius Press. We now continue our conversation with Father Vincent Toomey. Well, it just creates a tension, don't you think, Father, because there's a lack of trust in what the Church provides for us in our own ritual. And as you said, there has to be this beauty, this goodness, this truth, this authenticity about what our symbols are, of how we present. I've been in rural communities where they may not be able to put together the funds to be able to have a large church in the middle of that community, but it's one that is simple, it's good, it's true, the altars are beautiful, the symbols that they bring forward, it's the best that that community can give in honor of the action, the sacredness that's taking place there. And it just can take your breath away just by the reverence that they provide. You can be in some of the most ornate churches in Rome, and they are just filled with stuff and things are happening it becomes more of a tourist center. I don't mean to be irreverent, but it becomes a place of tourism as opposed to a place of worship. Am I being too judgmental, Father? I have to think about that. (laughs) No, of course, we can misuse anything. You know, all architecture, especially of the past, has a certain museum value as well. And in Rome, of course, you have a lot of just visitors, you know. So you can't really judge the way people behave, you know, in visiting a church to wonder at the wonderful architecture. I think you have to celebrate mass within that church if mm-hmm. it's properly celebrated, you know. Right. And um, very often, again, I think the uh, changes to the altar have affected that. Uh, you can have a wonderful Baroque um, surroundings, and yet you treat the the uh, actual altar as a, a table plonked in the middle of the of, of the sanctuary. You know, um, th- there's a kind of a disjunction there. You know, things don't quite fit, and therefore, uh, and I remember going to St Mark's Cathedral in 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 Venice, and I was very disappointed because you have this magnificent um, Byzantine-like um, church, you know, full of gold mosaics and, and uh, images. But the mass was said as though it were nothing, you know, something casual. It didn't have the 
the requisite solemnity and magnificence that actually would suit that building. Because buildings, of course, and, you know, uh, play, and, and people uh, and uh, celebrations do link. Now, you mentioned a small community who produce a beautiful um, small church, which is really beautifully done and tastefully done. It's authentic. That suits them, you know. But a big cathedral is made for big celebrations. And if they're not done with that kind of solemnity that actually is required, if the dynamics of the celebration don't, as it were, echo the magnificence of the surroundings, then, of course, things do look rather rather um, strange, you know, and not, not very inspiring either, I would say. And what we're kind of talking about, too, kind of touching on, maybe I exemplified that in my own comments. It's about taste, about our individual taste sometimes. But the church is beyond that, about yes. what my taste might be as yes. far as what something should look or act. That's why we have this beauty. It's shared prayer. It's discernment on what to put forward. The actions of Pope Benedict at the time was when he said, go back now and look at that language. And I'm referring to the word consubstantial. I mean, there was arguments about people are never going to understand what consubstantial means. And yet, isn't it remarkable? Now, long past that, everyone's entered into it. And the mystery of that word, they may not be able to define it definitively, as it were, but they know in their heart because they're experiencing it. And so you don't have to worry about the vernacular being too highbrow. Actually, you're lifting people's eyes up. And that's what he was accomplishing and has accomplished and will continue to accomplish, don't you think? I think the translation into the English was always a problem, yeah, because there were two schools of thought. One wanted to make it the whole of the mass understandable so that people could understand. We can never understand the mass, you know. The others wanted to be more ornate, you know, and, and a more uh, kind of sublime language. And I quote a former colleague of mine, Thomas Feynman, in the book, who quotes a, a Latin scholar who distinguishes between language as communication and language as expression. Communication is used for the news, for papers, newspapers, science, getting knowledge. But expression is poetic language. And I don't think uh, even the revised English translation has achieved that that poetic expression. I think there's a lot of work to do. Some things are. I think the prefaces are generally acknowledged as being quite very beautiful. And they do express quite a, um, you know, the wonderful depth of uh, the theology behind them in a very beautiful way. You know, so they are expressive of of, of the deeper reality. So I, I think that kind of understanding of language is very very important. So we have to work on that. You know, um, there's also an objection in the new uh, to the new uh, to many terms used in the new translation, like oblation, old-fashioned terms like that. You know. But I think uh, they are also an attempt to stop us in our tracks, especially the priests, and say, look, what are you, what are you talking about? You know? 
because the danger with the vernacular is that we do kind of treat it as something banal. We don't realize that the, the, the words in the mass are actually treating something sublime, something beyond comprehension ultimately. Uh, and therefore, the, you know, the, these strange words that sometimes crop up in, even in the second translation that we're using at the moment, I think they're there. And sometimes even the syntax is a bit, bit difficult, a bit hulpric, uh, as the Germans would say, it kind of, it, it's, it's not smooth, you know, it doesn't flow as it should do. Um, and sometimes the, the prayers, I think, you know, are, are a little bit too complex and things like that, you know. Uh, so I think there is a lot of work to be done there, but that will be done. But for the moment, we have what we have, we accept as it is. And for mm -hmm. me, that is the key to celebrating the Mass. We, we don't criticize it when we're doing it. We, we just enter into it and try and um, give it that love and respect that is due to the words of the uh, liturgy. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Now we return to Inside the Pages. I could talk to you all day, Father. <laughs> you are, you, you're providing such joy to my heart because just hearing you talk about these things, these are so important. And we're at a time when, at least in the United States, and I think this might be occurring at least in Western Europe, there has been such a decline the numbers have gone down drastically, and it isn't just because of a COVID lockdown. Something was happening before. I think it was maybe exacerbated a bit. The thing is, which you hear people saying, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Well, that spiritual, if it's properly presented, how can not the liturgy of the Catholic Church not be the most mystical, the most spiritual, the most extraordinary experience with, as you said, the cosmos and everything else that you could possibly search for. I mean, it brings those experiences on a hill with the sun shining down to the, the birth of a baby. It brings it all into this beautiful play. And we have it already in the liturgy. And that was always my sense of how Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger wrote about it and how he tried to communicate that and what you're doing with your work. 
But I hope that my, my work will get people to read Ratzinger again. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's only to stimulate uh, reflection as you're doing now, you know. And um, yes, I, I, I think uh, some, there was a French historian two years ago who published a book about an anatomy of the collapse of French Catholicism. Mm. He dates it to the year that the council ended, 1965. And one of the things he indicates, the reasons he gives, is the changes in the liturgy. They came too quickly, and they upset people. And what for theologians are, you know, not you know, are, are matters of discussion, whether you have the hand receive communion in the hand or kneading on the tongue. For most, for ordinary people, these were made are major, have major psychological effects. And that, in a sense, uh, one of the, it's not the only factors, one of the factors he gives for the, uh, what he calls the collapse of, of cultural Catholicism, you know. Um, because, the, you know, another one was interesting, the decree on the, um, uh, on, on, uh, on the freedom, to, uh, freedom of worship. Now, that was intended, you know, for countries where there isn't freedom of worship. We have it in Western Europe. We have it in America, thank God, and most other countries in the West. But that was interpreted very often as freedom to do what you liked, you know, which is a false understanding. Yeah? And that was linked up, of course, with a false moral theology at the time, false understanding of conscience. But I think that the main question, the main reason he gives, or one of the main reasons, is the way the liturgy was implemented. Because, and it's interesting to read some of the documents coming out of the synodal process, the synthesis of various countries. Inevitably, the liturgy is the one that's criticized most. People find it boring. They're, they're not involved. They don't feel involved. You know? Now, that is really quite a serious situation. And why do they not feel involved? Yeah. You, you pointed yourself to one of the reasons is um, the lack of catechesis. But I think the main reason is a lack of uh, experiencing the liturgy as it should be, with all that awe and wonder and reverence. Yeah. And of course, uh, that will attract people. It's interesting that the whatever the so-called Latin Mass is... Uh, celebrated, I say so-called, because we can celebrate the the new mass also in Latin, and I've, see, I've also experienced that. It's very beautiful, because the language actually lifts it up to a different plane. But where the mass is actually celebrated um, in, in, with, with due reverence, um, that actually is something that attracts people. And I think a, a lot, you see, also depends, unfortunately, on the priest, the main celebrant so-called our celebrandi, the, the way of celebrating the Mass, you know, especially because he's now centre of attention, being, being, you know, facing the people all the time. Um, everything you do, every action you do, people are watching all the time. It's very hard, you know, to actually, even for the people, to think about God rather than about the people. It's even more difficult for the priest to think about God. Because you you have the people looking at you, you know, but the 
Um, so they are celebrating the way the priest actually celebrates mass um, does unfortunately play a much bigger role. It always played a role, but a much bigger role in the way mass is celebrated today. For me, we talk about Ratzinger's theology of liturgy, very profound. In a sense, the biggest lesson he gave in liturgy was when he appeared for the first time celebrating mass for the world for the funeral of St. John Paul II. And all of a sudden, people realized there was something else going on. Yeah? And when he was inaugurated as Pope, I was there with some of my former colleagues in Rome, and we were there with thousands of priests and about four or 500,000 of, of faithful, you know, hundreds of uh, bishops and cardinals and other religious leaders and hundreds of kings and presidents and all the rest of it, you know. He came out, having come out in procession onto the altar and began mass as any parish priest would begin it at home. Simplicity. Now, one of the terms that is often used for as in, the aim of the renewal of the liturgy is noble simplicity. And I think that sums up, sums up the whole thing, you know. Um, there's a simplicity but it's not banal. There's nobility and integrity about it. Yeah? And that demands of the priest that he himself prepares properly for the celebration of the Mass, not just rush out onto the altar. And here's where processions and what happens in the sacristy is so important. Yeah? But also for the ordinary people. Um, people, I know somebody who, who became a convert, and one on the way into the church, he accidentally went in to, uh, to, to a church and mass was happening, an ordinary mass, an ordinary day. But he felt there was something, something happening here, the way it was celebrated, evidently, you know. And that really, it, wasn't, it was part of his journey into the church, but it was one of the things that kind of woke him up to the, to the reality of what the church represents. You know? So unfortunately, uh, you know, with the way the liturgy has been, has been celebrated. Uh, although I heard now in, in, in America as well, and in Canada, I, I've heard of instance of, of priests actually celebrating Mass once they've explained to the people what it's all about. On the other hand, you may have heard that uh, in South India, there's a huge dispute going on there. Because South India, the, the uh, Malabar Rite, it's a Antiochian rite, it's not a Western rite, very beautiful, I believe. Um, and in recent times, up to recent, up to a few years ago, the priests said mass also facing the east. You know? But then they turned him around and he faced the people. Now they want to turn him back and the people are up in arms. Hmm. So I think the way it's done, I think it can't be done by a dictate, diktat from Rome. You know, now we have to change. Yeah? People have to kind of grow gradually into it, into understanding why and then appreciating why of all the priests. But whatever is done has to be done together, priests and people. And the whole, you know, ultimately has, it has to get the approval of the bishop and he has to be behind it because we can't go out on our own. I would say that was the biggest weakness of the reform of the liturgy after the council. All of a sudden, the priest himself 
became the one who determined how the liturgy was run. And that is wrong, yeah. Mm-hmm. He determines the liturgy like everybody else, yeah. It's a new, I call it a new form of neoclericalism. So we have to, to fight that. Um, so they're just my, my, my thoughts. But um, I think the, um, the main thing is, you mentioned yourself, that actually participation in the Mass is, is both a physical and a spiritual reality. The spiritual really is the primary one that we actually are, we, we are trying to, to, to um, you know, that we understand what we're doing up to a certain point. But the physical one, the, the actions that we do, the way we respond to the prayers, the way we, the, 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 the word of God is proclaimed and the way the mass is celebrated, these are the externals. And then the, the whole ambience, the, the church itself, the beauty of the church and the music, they all actually then help us to lift up our hearts to worship God and give praise to him for his great glory. Amen. It's the source of which all the powers of grace flow. Indeed. Yeah. Fuel the church. And I'm so grateful for your work, Father Toomey. I wish we had more time. I really do. The dynamics of liturgy, Joseph Ratzinger's theology of liturgy. Just so remarkable. Any final thoughts, Father? The last thought I would say that irrespective of how the Mass is celebrated, God works through that. Once the intention is there by priests and people, you know. So we mustn't get too carried away. We, we, we must improve the liturgy. But we shouldn't in any way doubt that despite all the, the weaknesses of the priest who's celebrating, or the people, or the situation, or the, the way it is celebrated, that the mystery is God works his miracle. We encounter Jesus Christ in the sacraments. Um, irrespective of how they are, whether they're well well celebrated or, or not, you know, and that is what keeps us going. Okay. Well, more than a scholar, more than a theologian, those were the words of a wise pastor, and <laughs> I am so much. grateful for that, Father. Thank you very much. Uh, thank thank you. you. Every blessing and and for Advent and for Christmas, the rest of Advent and Christmas. Thank okay. You. Thank you very much. With Father Vincent Toomey, we've gone inside the pages of The Dynamics of the Liturgy, Joseph Ratzinger's Theology of Liturgy. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, visit Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it contained in the free Discerning Hearts app. You can also watch the video of our conversation on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.